2: Hello, and welcome to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel and this program, Autism One, A Conversation of Hope, for Tuesday, March 30th. I'm Terry Aranga with my guest, Dr. A.J. Russo. Dr. Russo is research director of the Pfeiffer Treatment Center with over 30 years of research experience. After graduate school, Dr. Russo did postdocs as a staff fellow at the National Institutes of Health, the Department of Neurology at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, and the Department of Dermatology at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. He then became a professor and researcher at Mount St. Mary's University in Maryland. His research over the past seven years has focused on studying autism. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Russo.
3: You're very welcome, Terry. Thanks well, for inviting me.
2: Well, Dr. Bruso, what do you think autism is?
3: Well, I, if I were to uh, define it, I would define it as a behavioral uh, right now as a, in, in the sense of uh, being a behavioral disorder. Um, it, and if I, if, if I had to you know, put it in words, it would be a neurodevelopmental disorder, which is characterized by behaviors, uh, which might include social deficits, language impairments, um, and repetitive-type behaviors. So it's really defined, right now at least, uh, by uh, behavior.
2: All right. You're talking about behavior, but then you said the word neurodevelopmental. Does that uh, lend itself to suggesting uh, a physiological basis for the behavioral manifestations?
3: Yes, absolutely. Uh, There's absolutely a physiological basis, and it's one of the areas that uh, we're currently struggling with and working on. Um, Scientists working in this area are trying to define what those developmental problems are right now, and although I I know that we'll talk about this throughout the hour, um, it it is uh, certainly suggested that part of those developmental disorders is genetic, and part is probably associated with environmental factors that may be causing those developmental problems.
2: We've also heard that a subset of children with autism spectrum diagnoses have gastrointestinal pathology. In general, why is it important to determine if this is the case?
3: Well, honestly that's a tough question. Uh, I'm, I'm not quite so sure that it's extremely important for us to determine that autistic children more than other subsets of children have gastrointestinal pathology, but it is important for us to study the fact that there's certainly a population of autistic children that do have gastrointestinal pathology. And by studying those problems, that might lead to better therapy for these children. Um, And, You know, even though a number of GI problems may not be significantly higher than in the general population, the type of these GI problems may wind up to be unique. And so by identifying those unique problems, we can better treat that subset of autistic children that do have GI disease.
2: That's a really great and important differentiation. Uh, And two, it brings to mind that even if, Children who've been diagnosed with autism uh, do not have a greater incidence of GI problems in general than controls or the neurotypical population. They should be treated and respected like any uh, any other patient, and not simply have possible um, physiological problems dismissed out of hand as oh, that's just autism.
3: That I agree with that, and um, as I mentioned. I think this idea that there may not be a higher incidence, but the GI problems may be unique in the sense that those with autism have unique types of GI problems. That kind of, that, that type of identification and therefore zeroing in on therapy that might help those unique um, problems uh, is extremely important.
2: Yeah, and also just because a clinician can't put it into the same box that they're used to in the neurotypical population doesn't mean that that child doesn't have a GI problem. Right. Wow, yes. these, are, these are really great points. Thank you. So in, in broad terms, let's go to the medical literature. In broad okay. terms, does the medical literature corroborate the pro- presence of GI symptoms or pathology in a subset of the ASD population? Uh,
3: in broad terms, the jury's still out uh, in my mind. Uh, There's several good studies and commentaries that suggest that children with autism are not more susceptible to GI disease, and there's several good studies and commentaries that demonstrate that there is a relationship. So in my mind, the jury is still out. Um, I know that if you talk to uh, clinicians who work with autistic children, many do believe that a lot of the children that they see have GI disease. Um, and there are also physicians who feel that uh, they see autistic children and, and, and they do note GI disease, but they don't really see any significant difference between autistic children and normal children. So, you know, I, I wish we had the answer, but I think that that answer will, will th- that point will, will be debated for a while. And um, as I said earlier, I'm not quite sure that answering that question is all that important. Uh, but nevertheless, it's going to be debated.
2: You've reminded me of clinicians who feel that um, there's a correlation between improvement of GI symptoms, at least, and um, improvement in clinical presentation. I know when I have a really bad stomach ache, I feel like sticking a fork in my forehead. Uh, what do you think right. about any possible correlation of behavioral symptoms uh, and GI symptoms?
3: Well I think that again still that the answer to that question is still still out there. Um, I think that we need to do some good some better studies to to, to try to answer those kinds of questions. Um, you know how effective the placebo is to people who go in to see a physician, and so uh, a child who comes in to see a physician who has GI problems might feel better just simply because they've seen the physician, and the physician has treated them well, they like the person, they know that they're supposed to feel better so that they feel better. So that placebo effect is something that we have to study, and more good placebo-based studies have to be done um, in terms of uh, affecting GI problems and then looking at behavioral changes, if that makes sense.
2: Well, certainly prospective studies uh, would be called for. now. For listeners who may not be familiar with interrelationships of different bodily systems, could you please share some brief insights about how the immune and gastrointestinal systems are connected?
3: Sure. Think of the GI tract um, as a long tube that extends from the mouth to the anus. And when you eat food, food goes into the tube, and then when it gets down to through the tube, into the part of the tube, that's the intestines, a lot of those foodstuffs then get absorbed and go into the blood. Well, a lot of foreign things follow food. They get into food. They get into the body just by simply opening the mouth and breathing. Some of the particles that come in from breathing get into the tube, and they also go down, and many foreign things enter the body through the digestive tract through the intestines and then once they go across the border of the intestine they go right into the blood and circulate around or they go into the surrounding tissue so microorganisms and pathogens get in a lot of them get into the body through that tube and the way the body is designed um, it's not just around the digestive tract but around other places in the body the cells And the proteins, which are primarily antibodies that are designed to fight against those foreign things, are sitting there right inside the border of the tube waiting for these pathogens to enter. And when they enter, the immune system is there to respond and will respond, and in most cases, unless the individual is um, compromised in terms of their immune response. And um, that reaction will take place. So you have this connection then between the immune system and the GI tract, which is a very important one. It's not the only one, because we have the same kind of system in the lungs, in many of our organs. Um, and any any location where um, pathogens from the outside can get into the body, there's, the immune system is usually waiting there, ready to respond.
2: That's a really wonderful explanation. Uh, now, how does this translate to the central nervous system?
3: Well, it translates to the central nervous system potentially in a couple of, uh, a number of different ways. If the immune system responds in a dysfunctional way, then it's certainly possible that any products that are formed or any um, abnormal immune response that's formed at the side of the GI tract may then enter the blood, may get in, and may, if small enough and if able, uh, may actually enter into the central nervous system. And so therefore products that are formed in terms of the immune response, particularly if it's an abnormal type response, may ultimately enter the central nervous system and may then, if the situation presents itself, may cause problems.
2: Does this include anything like those chemical messengers, cytokines, and chemokines?
3: Oh, absolutely, because some of them are certainly small enough to be able to get across the barrier and into the central nervous system, and any of them that are produced um, and that are released during an immune response, um, they would enter the central nervous system in that same way. Now, uh, the central nervous system does have a barrier, so that sometimes uh, eliminates certain possibilities uh, of molecules are sort of formed during an immune response or as part of an immune response from actually being able to enter, um, but many products do.
2: Now, you talked about foreign substances and foods, and I thought that was a kind of fascinating way to put it, but what about things like friendly fire, like foods that you and I grew up eating that now seem to produce uh, an, an allergic response in children, things from milk or wheat
3: well, um, you know, again, uh, depending upon the um, depending upon the, the type of food stuff, and the, depending upon the genetics of the individual, um, an individual who is an allergic to a particular type of food is going to respond uh, to the immune system will respond to it as that food stuff goes across and gets goes across the tube and gets into the blood or attempts to ultimately get into the blood. Uh, The immune system, as I said, is sitting there. So if the genetics of the individual is such that it will respond in an allergic way, it's going to respond right there as that food stuff crosses over that border um, into the uh, tissue that's surrounding the blood vessels.
2: And and I would imagine that certainly a compromised gut, uh, gut integrity wouldn't be helpful in this regard. It would let things go through more readily.
3: That's exactly right. Um, if the gut is uh, either damaged, um, uh, maybe through s- some other kind of um, response that it's made to other pathogens, um, we know that, for instance, in cases where uh, inflammation exists in certain places in the body, uh, the tissue around that inflammation will get damaged, and that damage might cause an abnormal Um, absorption of materials that are going across and then ultimately get into that tissue.
2: All right. Now, we may need to go to break in the middle of your answer to this, but is autoimmunity a subset of immune response?
3: I would probably say that it's not necessarily a subset. I would call it a type of dysfunction of the immune response. Mm -hmm. Um, And what I mean by that is that normally the immune system is designed not to respond to um, tissue of we call itself, which means tissue that's actually belongs in the body. But in an autoimmune response or an autoimmunity, for some reason the immune system is responding to and goes out to fight against tissue that normally is part of one's own body.
2: Very good, okay. When we come back from break, we will talk about one of the papers that you co-authored to our listeners. We'll be right back with Dr. Russo. Thanks to
4: our Dr. We'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
5: Com.
2: we're back with Dr. A.J. Russo, Research Director of the Cipher Treatment Center. And before the break, we started talking about autoimmunity. And, Dr. Russo, you co-authored a paper titled, Generalized Autoimmunity of Anti-Neutrophil Cytoplasmic Antibody and Anti-Saccharomyces cerevisiae Antibody Related to Severity of Disease in Autistic Children with GI Disease, First and very broadly, what do those terms mean? What were you looking for, and why did you study those particular things?
3: Okay, these <clears throat> these um these are a- antibodies, which are um, the main uh, normally the main um, uh, defense system that the body has. Proteins which are designed to defend the body against foreign things that get in. Uh, the ANCA, I'll just abbreviate it ANCA, which is the anti-neutrophil neutrophil cytoplasmic antibody, is a specific kind of antibody um, which is produced um, by an individual and actually winds up going out and attaching to various proteins that are made by white blood cells that are designed to defend the body against infection. Um, the anti um, Saccharomyces antibody is an antibody which is was identified which goes out and actually is designed and winds up attaching to the surface or cell wall of a certain species of yeast. Um, the reason why we were studying these antibodies is that these are autoantibodies. They're produced by the individual and they go out and they, they attach to these molecules that are normally working inside the body, so as we said before break, this is not normally the way the immune system should work. The immune system should be defending the body against foreign things, not against things that are normally functioning inside the body. So so therefore, both ANCA and ASCA antibodies are auto-antibodies. And um, we began to look at these because There has been, over the past couple of decades, a lot of research that has identified these antibodies as being present in diseases which are associated with inflammation of the gut. As an example, Crohn's disease and inflammatory bowel disease are diseases that are in part characterized and identified or diagnosed by the presence of these antibodies, so the reason why, again, we were looking at them is in part because they have already been identified in diseases that cause inflammation in the gut. And since at least some autistic children appear to have inflammation in the, the gut or the GI tract, we wondered whether or not these, these autoantibodies might be present in these children as well. Um, and so... Uh, we went about and we identified, and we we did find that a small subset of children that have GI disease, autistic children that have GI disease, have an array of these antibodies, Um, two types of the ANCA antibody and then the um, ASCA antibody. And to go one step further, and this might be um, a question that comes up, we were interested in seeing whether or not the presence of these antibodies was associated with how severe the GI disease was in the autistic children. So we studied that as well.
2: All right. In that paper, we read, an association with autoimmune enteropathies with specific antibodies targeted to gut epithelial cells has been shown in ASD. Is that what you were just talking about or something else?
3: Well, it's, it's a little bit uh, associated with what, what I was talking about. Actually, that phrase in the paper, I believe in the discussion part of the paper, was meant to say that other people, other scientists, have, have also found that there is an autoimmune response, and more specifically that there are specific antibodies that have been found and present on the cells that line the gut. Um, and this was a, a paper um, that was published in uh, 2002 by um, Dr. Uh, Torrent and his associates and Dr. Ashwood, um, which basically showed that there was a certain type of they found a certain type of antibody, and also proteins that are associated with antibodies that are designed to kill bacteria along with antibodies were actually attached to the gut cells. And that attachment, they found this in specific relationship to children that had the regressive onset of autism.
2: Mm. So would this be something that was considered a biomarker?
3: Well, I think it was meant more to at least demonstrate that there's something going on with respect to the specific immune response in children and a specific autoimmune response in children um, that have um, autism, and and children particularly that have uh, GI disease and autism. So I think it was, I'm not sure that we would necessarily call the antibodies presented here as being markers, but the paper itself, I think, was, if I can speak for the authors, was designed to demonstrate that there is a specific autoimmune response, and specifically antibodies, in children with autism in the gut.
2: Okay, fair enough. So this paper continued, quote, the data presented here demonstrates that a small subgroup of autistic children with severe GI disease have ASCA, and most of these individuals also have ANCA to both proteinase 3 and myeloperoxidase. These results also suggest that this group has a generalized autoimmunity, which includes antibodies to proteinase 3, myeloperoxidase, and Saccharomyces cerevisiae, and in combination, these antibodies are related to the severity of their GI disease, suggesting that autistic children with these three autoantibodies may be susceptible to the most severe GI disease and that the presence of these antibodies may be a marker for this subgroup of autistic children. So, Dr. Russo, what does this mean and how does this help us?
3: Okay. Okay. Basically, what all that means is that when we surveyed the um, group of children that had severe um, uh, GI disease, autistic children that had severe GI disease, we found again in a subset that some of the children had all three of these different kinds of autoantibodies, each one of the autoantibodies attaching to a different far, a different substance, a different molecule in the body. Um, and the three substances that were named PR3 and MPO, um, and then um, the ASCA protein, are uh, again the the actual uh, chemicals that the antibodies are actually designed to attach to. And what we found was that when we looked at the severity of the GI disease in this autistic group, and what we did was we, uh, with the help of uh, of the actual uh, endoscopic pathology that was done on these autistic children, we were actually we were able to come up with an objective scale that um, w- it was a point system, if you will, to allow us to measure objectively what the severity of disease was. And so um, the pathologist who, who looked at the, the gut through the scope, was able to note whether or not they had inflammation and how severe that inflammation was and we gave a number to how severe it was and when we matched up those numbers the higher the number the more severe the disease with the individuals that had these autoantibodies what we found was that the ones that had all three of these autoantibodies those wound up having the most severe pathology with respect to inflammation in the gut. Um, now, again, I think you asked why that was important. Well, there, it may not be all <laughs> important to some, but to us, when we look at this, it, it may be, as we continue to look at this, and again, keep in mind that this is a preliminary study of um, 20 to 30 patients, when we continue to look at this, if we continue to see the same thing, it may be possible for us to then um, take children who have GI disease, who are autistic, measure in their blood these this array of autoantibodies, and by finding which antibodies are there or how many they have, that might tell us how severe their GI disease is, and it may ultimately... Then allow the clinician to be able to give better therapy. The more severe, that might call for a different kind of uh, therapeutic protocol to, to try to um, combat this inflammation. Um, so, in a sense, it, it could, it could. Um, uh, not necessarily alleviate, but at least in some cases, it could um, be a substitute for invasive techniques that, that, that might be being used for this uh, purpose for looking at inflammation. But I think that it also may allow us in the future... We, we we probably wouldn't be able to do this right away, but in the future, we may be able to develop more specific modalities of therapy that are designed to block these antibodies specifically because if there's a relationship between these antibodies and this severe disease, in other words, there's still the question, we we didn't really answer this, but there's still a question whether or not the presence of these antibodies is actually causing some of the severe inflammation that's there um, if that's the case, then it may be possible that by developing therapy to block these antibodies from, from um, causing the problems, that might alleviate some of the GI disease as well. So it's, it's, it's mostly therapeutic. I mean, I think the benefit could very well be therapeutic. It's certainly not ready for therapy at the moment, but uh, it's, you know, as we continue to look at these autoantibodies. If there continues to be a relationship between the presence of these antibodies and the severity of disease, then uh, maybe ultimately better therapy can be developed.
2: Well, I agree with you. This sounds enormously important and helpful and practical, and it really underscores uh, some important research directions. And uh, I like how you brought up the point that this could potentially Uh, avoid some invasive procedures so it it almost sounds as if there's some sort there could be some sort of a of a signature or anti antibody profile for certain diseases
3: that yeah that's possibility
2: all right Uh, and I hear that we need to go to break so uh, thank you to our sponsor Enzymedica listeners stay tuned we'll be right back with Dr. Russo
4: Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness.
1: Tune in on Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time for Healing the Grieving Heart, the program that takes you on a journey through grief after the death of a child.
6: Mark your calendar and set an alarm so you do not miss the highly acclaimed talk show, Holistic Living with Tina Marie and Todd Allen. Tune in every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, noon Central, and 10 a.m. Pacific for inspirational, oftentimes edgy discussions on all that life brings our way. With celebrity guests, world-famous authors, and everyday people dedicated to sharing positive, uplifting messages, Tina Marie and Todd Allen bring you the very best in talk radio discussions, guaranteed to make you smile.
2: Welcome back. We're talking with Dr. A.J. Russo, Director of the Pfeiffer Treatment Center. And before the break, we were talking about autoimmunity. And uh, Dr. Russo, we mentioned MPO, or myeloperoxidase, in relation to the last study. You authored a paper in clinical and experimental gastroenterology titled Low Serum Myeloperoxidase in Autistic Children with Gastrointestinal Disease. What is MPO and its function, especially with respect to gut ecology?
3: Okay. uh, Myeloperoxidase, or MPO, is an enzyme which is produced by a type of white blood cell. It's actually the most common type, which is the neutrophil. Um, White blood cells um, are the the main group of cells that are uh, a part of the blood that are part of our defense system, part of the immune system, our defense against foreign things that get in. And so when neutrophils come in contact with things like bacteria and fungus, they are signaled to, in part, produce these enzymes like myeloperoxidase that will go out and ultimately attempt to destroy the bacteria or fungus. So an enzyme like myeloperoxidase is not the only enzyme produced by neutrophils, but it's one major one. Uh, it's really important in terms of the body's defense system against bacteria and fungus, and fungal infection.
2: All right. So with regard to the gut ecology, how does MPO particularly fit in? You mentioned okay. fungus.
3: Okay. Well, a little bit of history. I won't really go into this too much, but... The reason we wanted to look at MPO uh, was not necessarily because of its potential relationship to uh, neutrophils. It was because we found in the in the previous study that I mentioned to you on autoant- uh, um, autoimmune response, we found that uh, there was were these autoantibodies produced in some autistic children which went out and were designed to attach to myeloperoxidase, so we really were asking the question, why? Why were these autoantibodies being produced? And we thought that maybe the level of myeloperoxidase in these children would give us a little bit of an answer. So if we measured the amount of this enzyme, if the amount was very high, that might be an explanation for why the body was reacting and defending itself against the myeloperoxidase. Mm In fact, it turned out to be the opposite of what we suspected. When we looked at children that had GI disease, we found that, uh, autistic children with GI disease, we found that the levels of myeloperoxidase were very low, almost across the board. Um, So that's how we wound up uh, getting into it. Um, As it turns out, in terms of uh, myeloperoxidase levels, um, one of the interesting questions uh, which um, You know, certainly one of the questions that are associated with this deficiency and how how it might be linked to GI disease is uh, that uh, these low levels of myeloperoxidase, um, because of the way in which they work, may actually be a benefit. And what I mean by that is that the way myeloperoxidase actually does its damage, the, the way this enzyme attacks and tries to get rid of bacteria is by producing oxidants, it's producing um, molecules in what is referred to as being a respiratory burst uh, by intense uptake of oxygen, and it actually produces oxidants. And those oxidants ultimately, through a series cascade of reactions, winds up um, breaking down Uh, hydrogen peroxide into hypochlorous acid. It's the hypochlorous acid that does the damage to the bacteria. So in a sense, just to summarize, myeloperoxidase really is an oxidant, and oxidants can be damaging. They are damaging as part of this defense system. We need these oxidants to be produced. But if too much of these oxidants are produced, then that can cause damage to other surrounding cells as well. So it may be that less myeloperoxidase is a benefit because there's less oxidants being present in the GI tract, but there's a trade-off here because um, it, this is an important oxidant, and, and that means that, um, that it may not be being produced in the correct amount to defend the body against bacteria and fungal um, infections.
2: Wow, so
3: so there, there is that possibility what I just mentioned to you is strictly hypothetical and and you know, because we have not measured um, these things, but that's how myeloproxidase may ultimately the levels of myeloproxidase may be important.
2: Yes, so do you know if clinicians are working on trying to figure out how to balance NPO?
3: Well, one of the interesting things that we're looking at in a continuation of this project right now is um, is that we're wondering why myeloperoxidase is so low in these individuals. And um, one of the things that we're currently working on is trying to figure out why. And as it turns out, myeloperoxidase deficiency can be acquired by drugs like anti-inflammatories and antifungals. And as you know, a lot of children with autism, but a lot of children who, who don't have autism but have GI disease where there's suspected inflammation might be taking anti-inflammatory drugs, they might be taking antifungal drugs to um, as, as, as therapy for the gut problems. So we're wondering whether or not it is therapeutic. We've asked the question whether or not uh, the children that we've been studying uh, we're asking questions about their, um, uh, the drugs that they've been taking, and we're now going back and doing a more controlled study to look and see whether or not it's actually the therapy that these children are receiving that's actually maybe causing the lower levels of myeloperoxidase to be present in their blood.
2: So you're... And again,
3: we're not sure whether that's good or bad at this point um, in terms of behavior because we're we haven't made that link yet, but, but that's what we're looking for.
2: Okay. So you are talking here about retrospective and prospective information mm-hmm. and also um, the potential to try to correlate this with behavior. Uh, you know, in technical terms, Dr. Russo, I, I can't help but think that this sounds like a real mess. Um, it sounds like there's a lot of things we need to balance.
3: It is. It's not a simple. <laughs> it's not a simple yes or no type of situation. There's a lot of things going on in the gut, um, and um, you know, on one hand, we have bacteria. We have bacterial infections and 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 fungus that are getting in from the outside in the gut um, and other pathogens that are getting in. Our immune system has to be working properly, so we have to be able to defend the body against these things. And on the other side of the coin, we have the potential that the immune response itself could be causing problems um, and and or may not be working efficiently enough to be able to get rid of things that it should be. So it, it is a very, very complicated problem.
2: Do you find MPO to be useful as a biomarker in relation to oxidative stress and inflammation?
3: Well, we've really not seen a relationship Yet, uh, in the the patients that we studied, we did not see a relationship between these low MPO levels and the severity of the disease of these patients. Uh, So, in that sense, uh, at least so far, it doesn't appear to be a good marker to, you know, to be for us to be able to judge how severe the disease is. Um, uh, We're not sure whether it will turn out, Uh, and, and. until we really look at other markers, uh, probably, for oxidative stress in these same patients. And we are beginning to do that, um, and that will be some future research we'll do over the next year. But uh, so far, we haven't seen a relationship between these MPO levels and, and the severity of disease.
2: Well, these are good reasons to keep looking, and yep. we now turn our attention to the article Decreased Serum Hepatocyte Growth Factor in Autistic Children with Severe Gastrointestinal Disease, which was published in Biomarker Insights. Dr. Russo, what is hepatocyte growth factor and what association did you find between HGF serum levels and GI disease in children with autism?
3: Okay. Um, Hepatocyte growth factor, or HGF, is a fairly large protein that um, was originally isolated from, from, um, from cells. Uh, in rats, actually, from blood cells, actually blood platelets in rats. Uh, but um, it has an important function of, um, of both uh, GI function as well as um, uh, cells of the nervous system function. Um, the way it works is by attaching to a protein that's in the membrane of cells uh, which is called the C-MET protein. And then it creates a cascade of chemical reactions that ultimately cause the cell to do something. Um, and its, its functions are really, really general. It, uh, when it actually attaches and causes signaling, it can be what we call mitogenic, meaning that it can cause cells to divide um, quickly or more quickly. Uh, it can be morphogenic, and what we mean by that is that it causes cells to change in shape or differentiate uh, to meet its appropriate function. And it could also be what we call motogenic, meaning that it can create changes in the movement of cells. Um, originally, it was found to work in just um, liver cells or hepatocytes, and that's where the name comes from. But it is, you know, again, a very, very general, very powerful uh um, and I'll call it a marker at this point uh, because it has been found uh, to be associated with a lot of lot of different diseases, um, and uh, so that's that's generally what HGF is. Now, what we found was again that children with um, GI disease had uh, autistic children with GI disease had lower levels of significantly lower levels of this particular protein, and um, one of the questions you might ask is, you know, why were we looking for this particular protein in the first place?
2: Okay, can we pick up with that when we come back from break? Sure can, yep. We're going to pick up with HDF when we come back to break at Voice America. Thank you to our sponsor Enzymedica. We'll be right back.
4: more. Live better. Voice America Health
5: and Wellness. The World Health Organization estimates that 50 to 80 million people worldwide are facing infertility today. For most of them, this news is devastating. It's time for Gifted Journeys. This innovative program hosted by Wendy Wilson, president of a highly successful California-based egg donation agency, will take you beyond the traditional family and introduce you to alternatives such as IVF, egg donation, surrogacy, and adoption. You'll hear from experts and those who have walked the path. Tune in to Gifted Journeys, Thursdays at 12 noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health and Wellness.
4: Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
1: Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll-free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry.
2: We're back with Dr. Russo. And Dr. Russo, before the break, we were talking about hepatocyte growth factor, and why were you looking for it? Well,
3: over the past year or so, there was uh, uh, quite a bit of publicity and important publicity about a a gene that had been identified by um, scientists at Vanderbilt University. Dr. Campbell and his group at Vanderbilt discovered that there was a variation of a gene, which is called the MET gene, Uh, in a small but significant uh, portion of autistic children. And um, so that raised the question about the function of this particular gene. Why would this gene and a variant of this particular gene be important in autism? They found that there was this relationship between the gene and autism. Well, as it turns out, um, this gene, as I said earlier, makes this signaling molecule that's on the surface of cells, both in the central nervous system and in the GI tract. And it's hepatocyte growth factor that actually does the signaling for that protein and actually signals or causes the particular functional things that need to take place in the body associated with this gene. Um, as, interestingly, um, this signaling between HGF and the MET protein is involved in peripheral organ development and repair. Of involved in immune function. Involved in gastrointestinal repair. And then, if and then it, and then in the nervous system, it contributes to the development of the cortex. And has been found to be associated with the development of the cerebellum. Um, and so, because of that, because both of because. Basically, aberrations in these areas are consistent with aberrations that are observed in the brains of autistic children. This made this gene very, very important and potentially very significant. But from our perspective, it really was this connection between the potential connection between the GI tract and the central nervous system. Here we have a gene that's associated with a product that's connecting the the nervous system as well as the GI tract. And so we dove in and started looking at levels of this hepatocyte growth factor in specifically in children that had GI disease because uh, we wanted to see if it would potentially be a marker so that we can, again, uh, see whether or not uh, levels were specific to this particular part this type of disorder. And, in fact, that's what we found. We found that levels in children that have GI disease were much lower, and so now we're continuing to look at that.
2: Well, we will really uh, be interested in hearing the implications of that in the future. Let's look at your study called Decreased Serum Copper-Zinc Superoxide Dismutase in Children with Autism. Copper zinc ratios have been a particular expertise of Pfeiffer researchers, as far as I can tell. So could you please tell our listeners about zinc-to-copper ratios in individuals with autism?
3: Uh, sure. Here at Pfizer, uh, before I came, um, I've been uh, research director for about a year. Before I came to Pfeiffer, scientists here had uh, studied and found that many of our patients that come in, including the autistic group, have significantly low zinc levels and significantly high copper levels and therefore higher than normal um, copper to zinc ratios and have made connections between those levels and um, uh, the uh, neurological diseases that, that we've been studying and, and also have been uh, treating here at the Pfeiffer Center. Uh, we wanted to take a look at copper zinc SOD because this is an enzyme that is a very, very important antioxidant that works naturally in the body, particularly in the mitochondria. So uh, knowing that oxidative stress and also mitochondrial dysfunction both have been found by other investigators to be important in autism, we want to take a look and see whether or not this particular marker, copper zinc S.O.D., might be um, associated with autistic children. And we're not the first to look at this, actually. Copper zinc S.O.D. has been studied by other investigators. But we are particularly interested in seeing whether levels of copper and levels of zinc, which have been known to affect the concentration or the production of this particular enzyme, might be associated with the levels of the enzyme. And so we are currently looking carefully at that as well. Our initial paper was uh, consistent with other investigators, and we found that in the artistic group of patients here at Pfeiffer that their is a significantly decreased level of this copper-zinc SOD um, or this antioxidant that works in mitochondria and um, we now are moving ahead to look and see whether or not levels of these nutrients both copper and zinc may be associated with those decreased levels that we see.
2: And what about any connections with gastrointestinal disease in autistic children?
3: Well. There is a connection, interesting, interestingly, because we've also taken a look at the same children um, that have GI disease that we, uh, where we measured, um, as an example, hepatocyte growth factor um, in children that have uh, GI disease that are autistic. And we have found a correlation between the levels of copper-zinc SOD and the levels of hepatocyte growth factor. This is not inconsistent with some other reports in the literature, other scientists have found a connection. What it suggests is that it's possible that the levels of hepatocyte growth factor, the lower levels, and the lower levels of copper zinc SOD may both be markers for oxidative stress in children with GI disease. And again, um, wh- whether or not that's going to be useful to other scientists or clinicians in the future really remains to be seen, but there's certainly the potential of usefulness for that information. So um, we, we have a really interesting correlation between the levels of hepatocyte growth factor and the levels of this marker for oxidative stress uh, in these children as well.
2: And how can we loop this back into the beginning of this discussion at the top of the hour when I asked you what you thought autism was? <laughs>
3: Well, I think that the the best way to loop it back is to to add to the definition, I think, that at least in my mind, and probably in the mind of a lot of other scientists as well, autism is an an epigenetic disorder, meaning that it involves genes and very importantly involves maybe more than a dozen different genes have been identified and there's probably going to be more that will become identified that are associated with the onset of this disease but it also most likely involves environmental factors in factors as an example that cause higher oxidative stress or factors that are lowering the body's antioxidant uh, abilities meaning the ability to fight against oxidative stress and so to add to the definition, I would definitely say that we will find or are finding that, that um, autism is an epigenetic
2: disorder. Well, you've given us some wonderful directions for research, Dr. Russo. if listeners would like more information about the Pfeiffer Treatment Center or to look at some of these research papers, uh, you can go to www.hrip.org. P-c.org. Dr. Russo, I want to thank you for being with us today and sharing all this fascinating information. Is there anything that you would like to add?
3: Thank you so much for inviting me. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed the discussion. Um, if you don't mind, I just wanted to thank uh, Scott Feiler, our Executive Director at Pfeiffer, for his tremendous support in in um, supporting research at this level at uh, a treatment center like Pfeiffer. Um, I want to thank Alan Lewis, who's the Medical Director here, for his very, very important discussions. And thoughtful um discussions that we've had and i also have a couple of techs that work with me lori myers and kyle andrews who have been fantastic in terms of helping me out in the laboratory helping with a lot of these studies that i mentioned to you earlier and i also want to thank the thoughtful house because they have been a collaborative group um, they've worked with me and they've, they're continuing to collaborate with me in terms of um, their their patients uh, particularly who have gi disease and last but not least the Autism Research Institute that has supported several of these studies and is continuing to support several of these studies that I mentioned through, uh, through grants. So again, thank you and thank those people as well. It was really a nice discussion
2: absolutely and it's, it's really great to work together and we'll be looking forward to seeing Dr. Russo who will be speaking at the conference in Chicago in May as well as over 150 additional great presenters. Please visit www.autism1.org Remember to visit the Autism One website and check out the new book from Skyhorse Publishing, Cutting Edge Therapies for Autism, avail- available from Amazon and Barnes & Noble in just three days. The next information-packed issue of the Autism File magazine will be on the shelves of Borders and Barnes and & Noble on April 1st. Betsy and Kristen are back next week talking about diet, nutrition, and supplementation. For any questions about this program, please email me at, at autism oneorg Thank you to our sponsor Enza and to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel.